Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I have an introduction that's so long, we might not even need you to be here today. So. Wow, that's even better. I love your psych microphone. <laughs> you keep behind uh, me there. So that's some of my toy collection there, which is one yes. of the reasons Small Soldiers is such a favorite. And that's some of my comic collection, but I've got like most of the key books. That's it's amazing. Great. By the way, yeah. you just Joe has no idea what's on your list. You've just ruined it. So good. Oh, no. oh sorry, sorry. We sorry. we keep him. Is, this, keep is him. this is this the room that you don't let your wife in or what? It, well, this is one of the rooms. <laughs> I don't know. I've got I've got an office about fifteen minutes away, which is full of a real explosion of junk. Which is it's like a kind of embodiment of my mental illness. And then uh, and I've got an office down the end there where I basically listen to jazz and read detective novels. So. Oh my goodness! Oh good, oh that's, good. That's um, uh, well, and Joe, I, I should tell you, um, I'm guessing actually that uh, your wife probably enjoys that room. Probably, I, well, uh, Jonathan, Jonathan's wife writes very, um, very high tone, classy uh, um, British uh, movies for uh, the the Swankerati. No, she's um, do, the Swankerati. I don't know. I'm, I look. I just got up. I just got up. Uh, she she wrote kick ass. Um, <laughs> Kingsman, Kingsman. Kingsman. Woman in Black, yes. Stardust. There you go. Yes, that's all good stuff. stuff. Yeah, no, it's yeah. great stuff. I'm, I'm guessing she'd be uh, quite at home in that room. Yeah, no, actually. she, she, she fully understands this sort of obsession. Good. Yeah, no, it's great. Are those? Oh, look at that! And that. Oh, wow, that's a um, uh, God, a, a Detective Comics. Some, I just recognize the very I've got Detective Thirty Eight. I've got Batman Thirty Eight. That's it. Thirty Eight. Yes. Over there is Marvels, and over here I don't know if I don't want to disconnect. But if we go around here, I don't think you see that wall around there. Oh yeah, see that's all original artwork on the wall there. Oh wow! So I've got oh, like wow. a huge collection of original comic artwork, which I was buying just before it went insane. Now it's the prices now are just ridiculous, but I was lucky. I kind of got in early, and I didn't buy it for an investment. I bought it because I love having it. But it's uh, yeah. now it is an investment. That's right. That's I right. Although insured. I. <laughs> Exactly. Um, well, I uh, thank, thanks, man. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. And I, I, um, uh, well, let's, let's, let's introduce him and then I'll, I'll talk about how I came to, um, Jonathan and then, uh, if there's any time left. <laughs> <laughs> this is the movies that made me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Jonathan Ross is an actor, a comedian, a writer, a broadcaster, a producer, a movie lover, which is why he's here. Uh, currently a judge on the British uh, Masked Dancer. Um, and singer. And are you still? Okay. And, and Masked Singer. Um, you are, uh, now do we, I, I, I'm only partially facetious here. Do we call you sir? He's an I, officer of the most excellent order of the British Empire, Yeah, you don't have to call me sir. The OBE 
I'm not quite sure why I got given it, but it's a little medal that you are, you're only meant to wear at certain occasions. Like if you're at an event with royalty, or I sometimes put it in my house, I wear it when I'm watching reality TV. <laughs> That's it. Sounds perfect. Sounds per and do they actually, does the, is, is there a sword on the shoulder thing? No, you don't get a sword on the shoulder, but there is a big ceremony where you go to, you go to Buckingham Palace and everyone else is receiving that honor that day, either the OBE or the CBE or the MBE. Uh, they are, you're all there in the room. And what's nice is they've got a, a big orchestral band playing live music and sometimes they'll play something relevant to you. And I was hosting the BBC film show at the time I received the award. I did that for about 11 years here. And they, while I was going up to get my award, they switched to play the theme music from the film show. Oh, it's wow. Such a, it's such a lovely moment. It was very, very special. That's fantastic. And then, oh my, you know what? Hold on one second. I had something I was supposed to show you. You have to forgive me. I'm only on my second cup of coffee. This will be 20 seconds. Yeah, it's early for you guys. I apologize. No, no, it's okay. We're used to it. We, we, we have all these recalcitrant guests who uh, have the temerity <laughs> to not live in our country. Yeah. <laughs> Josh edits this part out, the part the part where he gets up to he goes pick like, up what he forgot. He always edits that out. Are you both in LA? Yeah. Sorry, the hilarious thing is you, oh, sorry, you won't even be able to see this. I was at a screening of The Green Knight last night, ah. uh, which I, I quite liked. And they showed it at the Alamo, and the Alamo did a little thing they put together about Dev Patel, a, a bio thing. And um, uh, I had just been talking to my friend Adam Rifkin about the fact that you were coming on the show tomorrow morning. And then they showed a brief clip. Can you see this? Oh, yeah, me with Dev. <laughs> yeah, that's when Slumdog Millionaire came out. And, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, ta I'm talking to that guy at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. Yeah, and I was hosting the BAFTA Awards the year he won for that as well, which was nice. Mm. Um, but uh, so, yeah, but here, Joe, do you remember Mondo Video? Sure. So I I came to uh, an awareness of Jonathan um, way back when, I think. Um, and Jonathan, I know you spent some time in L.A. Do you, were you ever, you, I feel like you might have known Mondo Video a go-go. Uh, I did go to Mondo Video. It's not there anymore, I believe. Is that no, correct? long gone. Long like gone. so many things. <laughs> yeah. 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 They moved to like, what is it hollywood boulevard for a while and then yeah i don't know but it was it was Always a really it was a unique and um uh glorious place that i lived in the south bay at the time which was far far away and about once a month i would drive all the way up to vermont to rent a whole stack of vhs movies which i think the statute of limitations is up i would then bootleg so that i could bring them back and not have to pay late fees and then watch at my <laughs> leisure but they rented a lot of things that you weren't legally allowed to rent um and among them there was a show called the incredibly strange film show uh which was hosted by jonathan which you have to remember at the time and what is this like late 80s i guess yeah about 88 we filmed the first 88 and 89 we did it and then we did a sort of a sequel called for one week only four episodes in mm. 91 i think that's right. And then, but I mean, imagine that time, you know, there's people listening to the show who just won't understand what, what it was like, because today you would just Google it and you'd find it on YouTube or something, you know, someone was telling you about some wonderful British TV show. And Jonathan just shone a light. Every episode focused on one or sometimes two filmmakers, but on some amazing, like I'd never, you did an hour long thing on Russ Meyer, which was yeah amazing back then to, to be able to see something like that. But good God, Ray Dennis Steckler. <laughs> Yeah, right. Ted, Ted V. Michaels. Ted V. Michaels, who was the sweetest man, just the sweetest guy, and never gave up. I mean, I think he was still trying to get his uh, his version of Beowulf made right to the very end. And 
It, it, they were just, but what, what attracted me to them, it was a, Joe, it was essentially, it was a kind of a, a love letter in documentary form to low budget filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, but for me, they had to be people who almost could not help themselves from making movies. So yeah. for example, one of the reasons why I didn't want to do one on uh, your uh, mentor, Joe Corman, uh, Corm Roger Corman rather, is because I always felt that Corman was a businessman first and a, a creative filmmaker second. And that may well be unfair of me. I felt the same way about Charles Band, for example. And so I didn't gravitate towards those, even though I loved the work they produced, the work they were involved in. Uh, uh, but people like Ted V. Michael, who made like Astro Zombies and Corpse Grinders and uh, Ray Dennis Steckler, who made Incredibly Strange Creatures who stopped living well, and became, became mixed up zombies. zombies yes. Yeah, <laughs> they were guys who I felt were, you know, kind of like hopelessly addicted to making movies, despite the general lack of interest shown by the public. Well, and they were always they were always on the fringes as opposed to companies and, you know, yeah. they, they, they engendered a lot of jobs and stuff like that. And so, and so they did have a much more far reaching impact. But when you talk about people like Dennis, Ray Dennis Steckler and, and Ted, they 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 hung on on their fingernails. They just tried to get these things done and made and uh, Graydon Clark and some of these other guys who, who just kept making movie after movie, um, sometimes good, sometimes not. Uh, yeah. But but always up for another one. Yeah, I mean it, it's interesting though. Even though what I just said about the, being the commercial aspect, one of the guys we we did in that first was with um, Herschel Gordon Lewis, who made Blood Feast and is kind of seen as the father of gore movies, the Wizard of Gore. Um, and um, he he was very much in it to turn a profit. He wasn't in it for the movies. And one of his movies, I'm trying to remember which one it is. Oh man, it's the one that begins. It begins with a, a sort of seven minute sequence of two. Uh, mannequin heads that are wig heads talking to each other and it's just a, a locked off frame of these two mannequin heads with voiceover dubbed in afterwards and I asked him about this you know slightly underwhelming beginning to a film and it was because when they'd finished making the movie it wasn't long enough to run <laughs> as a lead feature in drive-ins so he added seven minutes of a locked off shot just to get the minutes up just so they can say okay it's now 85 minutes or whatever was required and you can show it as the lead film. It's extraordinary. Roger used to do that uh, by repeating the credits. He would have the credits at the beginning. <laughs> then the picture would come in and it'd be only 72 minutes. And go, oh, we got to have 75. And then they would repeat the credits at the end or, or do a different credit sequence. I mean, it, it was, it was for some reason, there was some kind of a, uh, a need to have the picture run 80 minutes in order to be considered a feature. Whereas, you know, prior to that, the, you know, there were many 60 minute movies made during yeah. the forties and uh, where you know, it was intended to be a second feature. But yeah. when some of these guys realized that they weren't going to get an, as much money, if the picture played on the bottom of a, a bill with a major film, then they went, well, we've got, we've got to make two. That's how AIP started. I mean, they, they, they ended up making two pictures so that they owned the whole program. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, well, it was it was I, I can't I can't express to you what a what a boon that show was back back in the day. I mean, it's just the kind of stuff that um, you know everyone takes for granted today. It's it's so easy to dig that stuff up. If I'm curious about Russ Meyer, I can see hundreds of hours of stuff on him just by typing it in. But this this yeah. was this was wonderful, especially for people that you know only myself and a handful of our friends we assume were into um you did a great one by the way and i i uh, i'll disclose now and i'll edit this and i'll i'll remove it from the internet if you're outraged um i took your episode of uh the one on jackie chan 
uh, a while back. Uh, I'm sure it's illegal. I ripped it off of the uh, Criterion Blu-ray. I think was it on Police Story? Yeah. And um, uh, I don't know. It may have been the I may have got the Arrow set, and I replaced all the old footage with new, beautiful Blu-ray oh, nice. quality. And, wow. and then I added a bunch of stuff at the end and I, I slapped it up on Vimeo a while back, uh, which if you're okay with that, we'll tell people about it on the show and yeah. link to it. But you know, I've, I, never, ever, I've always wanted people to see them and I've never, yeah. the only reason why I didn't really, some, some people say, you know, why don't we, we show them or why don't we put them out there commercially? And, and to an extent it was because back when we made them, of course, this was before there was a domestic video sell through market and there wasn't a DVD market. And so we didn't clear any of the clips for that. And right. in the uh, oh. particularly Sam Raimi episode, uh, there was some there's some kind of legal fog around uh, his second movie, Crime Wave. Um, and right. so I think that would be virtually impossible to clear. And I didn't want the shows going out without the clips that substantiated the part of the interview in which we had discussed that. So right. that's the only reason I never, never tried to uh, uh, release them commercially. But I'm very happy for them to be out there for people to see. And I know there's a guy in the States who sells them on DVD, and I'm, I'm cool with that. It's got nothing to do with me, and good luck to him. Yeah, well, they're great. Then, in that case, yes, I, I urge you to check them out. Uh, You're solid. I'm looking at all the them out. So, yeah, if that sounds good to you, go to the trailersfromhell.com uh, link for this episode for Jonathan Ross, and there will be a button there that'll take you to uh, the glorious uh, restored and um, revised uh, episode of that show with the clips done in glorious HD. And 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 Joe, I don't know if you know, he did one on our pal uh, Stuart Gordon. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love Stuart Gordon. I think this was before he'd done because um, he was moving mainstream. Did he do Honey, I Shunk the Kids? Uh, or was oh, that he was going to. He was going, he was to. going to on the year. And it was just about the time I think he was prepping for that. So he was about to go from the kind of fringes with Reanimator, which first excited me about his work into more mainstream. And I think Brian had just released Society at that time. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it was about them. So, so they were very much in keeping with the kind of the, the, the area of interest for me, which was, you know, stranger, slightly more personal, but delightful kind of a lower budget pictures. Yeah, no, he was, he was, uh, he was something. I got, to, I got to meet him through my association with Joe and um, uh, just a lovely, lovely guy. Yeah. Uh, we got to, oh no, we did, was he there when we went to, see, we saw Reanimator the musical. Uh, yes, jam, which is great. And he was there. Yeah, that was that was fun. That was the one where they uh, they gave um, shower curtains to people in the first three rows because the blood spatter was. You so would get huge. yeah. <laughs> oh, kind of right. Remember we went, we went with Landis, and there was this surreal moment where they all started doing the Thriller dance, and uh, he just laughed like a hyena. Um, but uh, but anyway, Jonathan. Um, oh, and also a comic book writer. I left that out. I apologize. I wrote a few, but you know, some of the things you've got, I mean, you know, I've dabbled in things. I've never really been an actor. I might have guest appeared in a few things, but only ever play myself. So you, you've given me far too much of a, a build up there. I'm, I'm more of a, you know, TV guy, basically. is, is Personality, is, I believe, is the phrase. That would be, although, <laughs> although I, as I get older, I realize I'm coming to the end of my personality. So it's, it's almost all gone. <laughs> well, I'm glad we got you now then. We'll try to, we'll try to squeeze the last dregs of it from yeah. you. Um, oh, then I was going to say very quickly, and then I was having lunch uh, many years ago with my friend Jake Weiner at Bender Spink, and he was telling oh, yeah. me, this is another place that uh, is long gone that I miss. He was, we were across the street from Meltdown Comics in Los Angeles, and he was telling me about this uh, great comic book. Uh, he's like, do you know this guy, Jonathan Ross? I'm like, oh, yeah, he did. The, he wrote this comic book called Turf, which is about vampires and gangsters and aliens. 
Um, he said, you should check it out. I went, great, I will. And I literally walked across the street to Meltdown and Jonathan was standing right there. <laughs> I used to love it. Meltdown's gone as well now, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. Oh. They... It's, all, it's all gone. I know. Well, London is nothing now. London, all of the cool stuff and all the interesting stuff has been, you know, politicians who have been taking, you know, or doing favours for developers and so much of the character and so much of the stuff that we all enjoyed has been wiped out so that the world can... Well, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this earlier, you know, the whole kind of like um, the, the kind of just the, the, the everything is essentially becoming the same. I know there's a word for that. I can't think of it. And I remember when I interviewed David Lynch for One Week Only, which was the series of programs I made after the Incredibly Strange Film Show. And he pointed out to me that on La Cienega Boulevard, because he was studying film in L.A. at the time when he made Erase Ahead, La Cienega Boulevard, where the Beverly Center is now, which at that time was a fairly new and shiny place, but I now is now kind of essentially fallen, it's like a third rate, it's seen as a lower level shopping mall. That was, was an open building space, nothing had been put there. And that was where he shot Henry from Erase Ahead, walking across this kind of like wasteland where he finds a cat's body trapped in tar. And that was where the Beverly Center is now. And when I interviewed him, I remember thinking I couldn't picture L.A. that recently having been that underdeveloped. But of course, we were talking about a period of, say, 15 years in which it had all accelerated. And now that we're probably almost 30 years on from when I interviewed him, of course, it must have all changed virtually beyond recognition from then as well. My girlfriend used to go to that area for pony rides because there was a, there was a small amusement park. Uh, on that property and then across the street wow. where there is now a big hotel there were these little sort of uh, store western storefronts uh like it was a knott's berry farm uh wow. kind of a thing and and, and there were oil oil derricks all over the place yes still along it's amazing isn't it it's yeah. amazing to think but gone and, yeah and now when they threaten to tear down the beverly center we'll all be out there going no you must leave this beautiful landmark no it's Gosh, so i don't think so i don't think so they, don't they think just, so. They just <laughs> They've just revamped it, and it's uglier than ever. Yeah, Josh, you've uh, gone too far. You've gone yeah, too no, far. No, I, 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 can't, I can't remember the last time I was there. Good God. Um, but, yeah, all these, like, Meltdown shut down long before the pandemic, unfortunately. And, wow. That's a shame. Um, and then, I don't know, Mondo Video just went the way of, of video stores before that. We only so. have Vidiots left. Yeah. Vidiots still there? Vidiots is still there. I believe yeah, it I There used to be one in New York as well, down in St. Mark's Place, which was a great place to find kind of b-movies and underground films but when i first started making those uh those shows they were impossible to find those films were impossible to find here in the uk because we had that the video nasty scare so anything right. that wasn't certified by the bbfc the british board of film censors what wasn't given a legal release so there was a kind of a very very shady underground where you could find them but of course this is the days pre-internet so i remember i, I found some of the herschel gordon Lewis stuff i scoured the small adverts in local newspapers. And I found something, there used to be a, a, ma a magazine called The Exchange and Mart, where you could buy and sell goods. And I found a guy in the north of England who was making running off copies of Herschel Gordon Lewis movies. Mm. And so I had to send off a, a bunch of stamps and postal orders with a small amount of money and wait two weeks while he dubbed off a few copies and sent them back to me. And in a way though, that made it all the more fun. You know, yeah. it was the search was as much a part of the joy as finally getting to see these things. Oh God. Forbidden yeah. fruit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it should take work. And God, do you remember the, uh, the, uh, uh, I like to think there's some old heads out there are actually enjoying this uh, conversation. The, <laughs> Ru Russ Meyer's videos had, um, I remember the first time I, uh, there was a store near me that rented them. Video archives, Joe, where uh, a young, young fella named Quentin Tarantino worked. Um, and 
there was a phone, you know, and I loved Russ Meyer, heard about him for years and seen a couple of his films. And you realize there's this, you know, he did more than just Faster Pussycat and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And you, you, you know, you'd rent like the five they had and realize there's 10 more. Yeah. And there was a phone number on the label. And this is kind of pre-internet. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll call up and see if there's any way to get these other films. And I dial the number and it rings. The guy picks up the phone. He goes, yeah, Meyer here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you'd get white food. Russ was Holy very hands-on. <laughs> very, very, Russ. very. He was very sweet. I, I met him, I saw him many times over the years, and I did a big interview on stage with him here at the British mm. Film Institute, which is transcribed. And I look back at now, and you know the weird way where you, you bone up on a subject before you do it? I read this interview, and literally almost everything I talk about in that interview, I've forgotten. I knew more oh, wow. about him that afternoon than I've ever right. known about anyone else in my life. I and mean, it's a very, if I say to myself, a very good interview, but I'm amazed because I do not remember asking those questions or knowing that stuff. So I must have really put some work in and now the memory's gone there. But Russ was charming. He took me out. I went to Musa and Frank's with him on Hollywood oh. Boulevard, I think that is. And we also went to a little restaurant. He said, I'll take you to my favorite restaurant. And uh, he, we, we drove out of town. It was a, it was a, sort of like unjustifiably long drive to get to a fairly mediocre restaurant. <laughs> it was one that Russ loved. And it had been founded, I believe, on the winnings of someone had had a winning racehorse. And so they had statues of this horse and memorabilia related <laughs> everywhere. It was really, but it was that classic, weird, old, dark wood Hollywood sort of restaurant that sold basically steaks. I mean, that was kind of it. <laughs> and that kind of, that was Russ, I think. He was still very much that old Hollywood, even though in a way his work represented a new Hollywood and a right. slightly subversive underground and independent Hollywood. At the same time, he comes from that, you know, he, he was a photographer in the Second World War, you know, he's yeah. of that period. And so I always thought of him as a very much a dark wood corner booth in a restaurant kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, that, sound, that sounds right. Uh, that must have been a blast. God. Yeah, he, um, was, he was great company. Well, let me let me offer you this uh, at this stage of your career, maybe too late, as you say, you're running out of personality, but but we have stumbled across a formula, Jonathan, where we don't actually have to do any research beforehand. Like that, like as that. you as you know, we hand it to the guests. So <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I I just thought it'd be a blast to um I mean I knew it'd be fun to talk to him, Joe, but I thought that uh, uh it would be fun to um sort of pick his brains about some movies that we probably haven't talked about much on the show. And I thought if anybody was going to throw us a few gems, it, it would be Jonathan. And um, uh, so he sent me a list of, uh, I think it was Citizen Kane, Potemkin. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence <laughs> of Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> Clockwork Orange. Do you like, uh, how do you feel about Clockwork I, so, I've seen those films. I like all those films, but obviously <laughs> we know they are, they are paths too well trod. Uh, they certainly are, but yeah, you should we jump into it? You want to talk about some of the movies that that uh, sure. excited sure, you? Well, over let's the start years with and... the one I I blurted out earlier. Yeah, on. you've already blown it. You've already spike yeah. lead it, as they say. I love I love small soldiers. I love small soldiers, Joe, uh, and I love it for any number of reasons. I love it because it's a great film. It's a great fun film, and I also love it because it's got Dick Miller in it. Who doesn't love any film <laughs> that's got Dick Miller in? I automatically feel fond of, and you have many, of course, in your back catalogue. Um, but in a way, on a more personal note, I love it because it came out, I think, late 90s. And I remember going to see it with my family, my young growing family. We were on vacation in Florida and uh, they were just the perfect age for it. I think the oldest one was about eight and my son was about just turning five or six. 
My youngest was about three. She probably slept through it. But of course, they loved it because it, it, even though it has some dark moments in it, and I believe it was originally intended for a slightly older audience and to be a slightly darker film, they adored it. So, of course, not only did we see the film and loved it, we bought it on VHS when it came out, which I still have my VHS copy. Uh, and we bought most of the toys for the kids that came out afterwards, including uh, in the house I've got in Florida, we've still got the, um, the child size uh, small soldiers duvet cover. <laughs> on one of the best, which has survived these many years. Um, this will, this will put these kids through college, believe me. It's a great, great film. I love it. And it's a, partly, you know, I love the story's great. I think I think it's a very, very, it's an underrated screenplay, but also the cast is amazing because you've got Dick in a small part. Of course, you've got very young Kirsten Dunst, but you've got, um, I think it's Jay Moore plays one yep. of the kind of, a, and and um, David Cross, yeah, who's great. So once again, it's very much of its time in both the casting and the look of it. I love the cinematography. The colours are, are very interestingly chosen, even the clothes. I know it's, it's one of the early scenes with Dennis Leary's in a ballroom with the other guys and their, their shirts and ties. And I don't know whether that was just what was in fashion then, but something about it feels hyper-real and feels <laughs> like it inhabits the world of choice. And I also love the screenplay because, of course, in this film, you know, it's somewhat... I guess a kind of classic fantasy trope, the toys might come alive, but normally it's a supernatural thing or it's a fairy tale thing. But of course in this it isn't, in this it is very much, it's kind of believable. And I'm surprised that we haven't got toys of that level already because it's artificial intelligence, it's science, it's built into the toys. And I think as a, as a child myself, I always wanted my toys to have some degree of autonomy. I wanted them oh, to God, yeah. play for me. Uh, and of course they never did, but but, you know, it, that was a fantasy which I know I saw my children warming to in the same way that I had when I was young. So it's kind of a lo really lovely family film for us as a family in that uh, we have personal. And also, I just I just love it. The only thing I wish and even at the time I'm thinking, and this is an old guy talking, I wish it had been more physical effects because I believe you had more of the toys made and less CGI. And this is a common complaint. And this isn't actually a complaint because I think the CGI in it works very, very well because it is limited to the characters that are unreal. But at the same time, the few moments when I think you can detect actual models and figures, it really gripped me all the more. So I'm, I'm curious, Joe, because that was presumably a conscious decision by you or by the studio? Well, Joe, I'm, I'm, Joe loves CGI. That's I, no, I, I appreciate CGI, and I think it can do wonderful things. But in this case, uh, we were going to do it sort of like we did Gremlins, which was largely with puppetry. And uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in practical effects and having things on the set and have actors be able to react to something. And, um, but in the case of Small Soldiers, when we started to make the picture with Stan Winston's puppets, um, the techniques for blending them into the background along with the actors became extremely complicated and costly. And we discovered just around that time uh, of, of development of CGI that it was actually much more economical to uh, if the if the characters didn't have to do more than walk for a couple of steps, it was more economical to shoot a plate and put the characters in afterward with CGI. And and it didn't have to be great CGI because they're they're toys. They're not supposed yeah. to move realistically. It's not like Jumanji where you know you're yeah. always thinking that doesn't look like a real tiger. Now of course they can make stuff look like anything yeah, um, yeah but we ended up using i think a lot less puppetry than we had originally planned uh simply just to get the movie made on time you don't have any of those puppets knocking around that you'd like to donate to a young fan or maybe even a not so young fan maybe quite an old fan i have uh a, so i have some original maquettes we call them Oh, I know the maquettes, yeah, yeah. And uh, they're they're uh, they're in my um, <laughs> in, in my my dish display at the uh, in the giant dining room. I have Archer 
and I've got uh, Chip Hazard. Archer was, you know, so what's lovely as well about it is watching it uh, kind of through child's eyes, watching it with children is what the, the kind of storyline in which the kind of creatures who are sort of visually, you would think maybe were the monsters initially turn out to be the good guys, whereas the all-American jocks, kind of the soldiers, the G.I. Go, G.I. Joe guys are kind of the bad guys. I haven't spoiled it for anyone there. And of course, um, historically, <laughs> well, that, was kind of the, that was kind of the point. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and that's what was joyful, though, because the kids, you could see them really buying into this idea that no, no, don't, just because they look a bit like monsters. They're not the monsters. They're not the monsters. You know, and really feeling that great empathy they had with these characters who are suffering from this misrepresentation elsewhere. So it was really joyful in that way. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad you yeah, liked it. I love it. Uh, so you, you just you just reminded me of uh, uh, as a kid. You know, I'm I'm old enough that uh, I had GI Joes that were the large ones. Remember, with the um, yeah. with the scar on the face. And my mother was so appalled that I was always playing with these these war figures. Uh, she got some off brand outfits for Joe, and you know I had a couple of them. <laughs> it's a terrible thing to admit. And one of them had hip hugger bell bottoms, and a uh, sweatshirt with a peace symbol on it. So I used to have the other Joes kill that one. <laughs> wow. All right. So you had them kill the pacifist. That's yes. very... Uh, yeah. I'm a warmonger. <laughs> You're a terrible human being, Josh. I know. I know. I know. Um, uh, I'm hey, actually you not. I, <laughs> you mind if I pause one second? Because due to my elderly years, I need to run to the toilet. I'd rather do that than sit here trying to hold it in. I'm sure. Don't no, cut please. This part. Don't yes. Cut I'll this. be one. Leave I'll this be in. one. Yeah, we'll, we'll play some Jeopardy music. Hey, Joe, we can actually talk right now. We can do a um, They Love When We Improv. Uh, do you want to talk about um, Movies Unlimited? Oh, Movies Unlimited. What an interesting topic. Yeah. Did you happen to hit upon that? Um, uh, they're, they're our sponsors. They're great. Well, they it's... are our sponsors, and, they're, and, and we love our sponsors. Our sponsor. Our sponsor. Our, sponsor. <laughs> our favorite sponsor and our only sponsor. Uh, because they do great work and we uh, plug them whenever we possibly can and if there's a movie that you're looking for uh, that's the place to go because oh. they have a catalog that is second to none. Do, do you want to do you want to even guess here I'll, I'll confirm my, my big fear is that someday we say something that's that's somehow legally actionable so I'm gonna uh, do the bleeding obvious here and just make sure oh look at that they have small soldiers Joe you can get <laughs> Imagine that. And I'll probably get at least a, a, a half of a quarter of a penny. Uh, there you go. And and I, I guarantee you they'll, they'll have some, although I'll tell you something, I, I do know the movies that are coming. They're not going to have all of the movies uh, that Jonathan talks about because he's going to get pretty obscure here. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, oh, he's back. Jonathan, we took advantage of you uh, disappearing. To, to We're plugging our sponsor, uh, Movies Good Unlimited. Uh, Movies Unlimited. They're, Movies Unlimited. Yeah, they're a great, they're a great uh, online uh, resource for buying physical media, which I'm guessing, just basing uh, on what I, I see of your room of. there, that uh, this is also <laughs> a, uh, an altar you worship at. <laughs> And it's fine. I mean, you know what? I'm all I'm all in favor of streaming as well. But I mean, I think people of a certain generation do like to have the physical item. You know, the younger generation seem cool with with only owning a digital version of it. And uh, but uh, I think we all like to have it. And partly also, uh, like most uh, you know older guys, you wind up 
revisiting and repurchasing things you had in your youth, including vinyl albums. And it's not just because of the sound, it's because you like the look of it, you like the, it's Proustian ability to transport you back to the time when you first bought it or first saw it. And, and it's interesting that, you know, the, the kind of new generation are feeling that way about, for example, I don't know if you saw how much that Super Mario game went for at auction a couple of weeks back. Oh no. It went, it went for something like a million dollars. You know, an unopened Super Mario cartridge from like 94, which I think I've got one in my house in Florida. So I'm going to get that and the small soldiers duvet and I'm going to retire. Wait a minute. I, I, I think I should cut that because someone is now going to figure out where you are. You talking about a million dollars? You just said there's a item no, worth a million dollars sitting in a house I, in Florida. I, I, unfortunately, <laughs> I think I suspect I don't. You know, it's that kind of thing with conditions like comic books. You have an old comic book and everyone thinks, oh, my God, this is great. But unless you've got it in the condition that it was when it first came out, this was it was rare in that it was unopened from that period. The one that went to auction. I don't have an unopened one. I feel I was kind of being so like, it might only be worth half a million. Say you should send you, Joe that address and he can send you a small soldier's thing. And if you don't mind fixing the air conditioning while you're there, you can have it. Okay. And you've already used that duvet cover, so that's probably yeah. not worth anything. <laughs> yeah, it's well pre-loved. Um, wait, so should we, here, let's rather, so so uh, click the Movies Unlimited banner on the Trailers from Hell website. And, and um, How's that uh, for embedding your commercial? Yeah, no, it's great. It and remember, sneaks in. Tell them, Joe, is sh what, what is shipping if you spend more than $50? Free. That's right. Okay. Sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> That's that almost sounds too good to be true. I I would be I would be buying a lot of stuff from that if I was in the states. <laughs> they're they're great. They're they're really great and they're lovely people and they actually listen to the show and uh, uh, they're they're we love them. We love them. Actually, they came to us because they listened to the show. They were fans. That's really nice. Yeah. And yeah, we, we were terrified that we would end up having to, you know, take out a sponsorship. I don't know. Like, there's so many things you're like, oh, we're going to have to do this. It's like, cigarettes. To sell vinegar or cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or use the blades for ladies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like, hi, we sell video, you know, we sell physical media over the internet. And we're like, we've been advertising you for a year without even knowing. Okay. Anyway, apologies. So that was, that was one. <laughs> okay. What's the next one? Yeah, let's go. <laughs> what's that? Uh, where do you want me to go to? Well, you know, why don't we go to uh why don't we go why don't we travel to Europe and let's go to Bob Le Flambeur. Oh, an amazing yes. Jean-Pierre Melville film from about I think mid-50s, 56, 58, maybe. I'm not sure the date. I don't know if you know that, Josh. Have you ever seen this one, Joe? You ever seen Bob Le Flambeur? Oh, yes, I've seen Bob Le Flambeur. What an amazing film. And that, I mean, I partly love it once again. I think I don't know if it's an age thing, but I love movies from that period which are shot on location, which there aren't as many as one might expect, especially in post-war Europe and, mm -hmm. and in you look at some of the post-war Japan films as well, it's quite hard to find one that was shot in location. Of course, this, this is shot in Paris and around Paris and part in Deauville on the coast uh, on location. And it's just exquisitely beautiful to see Paris back then. We're back to that subject we talked about earlier, the way things that we love have changed and gone. And, and right. like all cities, Paris has changed dramatically. But you look at this, the romance, you can see why it was called the City of Lights. You can see why people fell in love with it. It's just the, and, and the way it's shot in that crisp black and white photography with the, it's, it's the gambler. Bob has been up all night gambling. As always, he's down on his luck. He hasn't had a great night and he's heading back to his apartment, I think in Montmartre. And you see the, the trash man collecting the trash and it's been waning and the, the lights are gleaming off the wet cobbles in the streets. And it could not be more beautiful and it couldn't be more uh, transportive in the way that you feel like you're really there in that moment. And he goes into his apartment and he does what he does every night before going to bed. He pulls on his own little kind of, uh, uh, what's one of those machines called? The Lucky Bandit in his room every night before bed, just uh, gives it one go, right, one last right, go right. yes. 
just a beautiful film about the kind of doomed romance of a gambler, the concept of gambling. But of course, it's got so much more in it than that. It's also a love story, a love triangle. It's also about loyalty. It's about friendship. It's kind of a heist movie, although the heist isn't front and center. And it's got a, an incredible kind of open ending in which you can supply your own. If you want it to be upbeat, you can supply that. And if you want it to be more true to life, you can have that. It's just a, just a really beautiful film, which I stumbled on by accident when I started catching up and filling in the gaps in my cinema appreciation by going through French film for that period. And I'd seen some of the bigger ones, but I hadn't seen many by Melville. Um, no. And I think I stumbled onto him via Le Deleuze, which is a, a Belmondo movie from about the same period. And really, but this one has always struck me as being just a, almost a perfect example of the beginning of that French kind of like adoption of Western cinema, the Cahiers du Cinema guys trying to remake on the American template, the films they had loved in their own style. It predates the Buddha Souffle, and I think Goddard often references it as an inspiration. And it's got a great lead as well. This was before Melville had the bigger budgets. I think his name is Duchesne, the lead actor. Um, and he's just, he's a very handsome man, an older man, but he's just perfect in it. He really brings something to it. It was remade, I believe, in the, I think the 80s or the early 90s as The Good Thief. With oh, Nick right. Lee, You're right. I forgot that, yeah. Image. Which, which isn't anywhere near as satisfying a film, I don't think, although I love Nick Nolte generally on film, but it just doesn't have the same kind of sense of time or place or believability in the romance of the story and the nobility of the lead character. He's a great anti-hero in that he's not necessarily a good man in the conventional sense of law and order, but he's a good man in sense of what is right or wrong. Yeah, no, it's a great film. I'd completely forgotten The Good Thief, right? Neil Jordan. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Bob, Bob is, uh, uh, yeah. I think that was that was the first. I, I was taking a class in college. I think that was the first time I've been exposed to those movies, and uh, they're so spare and just beautiful. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're everything's just stripped down, and yeah, I I, I love them. Um, ah, fantastic, Joe. Are you you like those movies? Yes, I do. I, of course. Yeah. Whole, have you have you seen uh, Chavagnier's uh, documentary about uh, French cinema? I have not. Uh, it's uh, it's like six hours or something like that, and it's it's a, a journey through French cinema. It's it's like much like Scorsese was doing with Italian cinema. Wow! Uh, and it's uh it's a, it's a and Tavernier passed away recently. He was a friend of mine, and is like there such a treasure trove of movie knowledge disappeared when he when he passed. Where would you have seen these films? Did you get to see these when they first came out? Because they were shown a little in New York, I believe. I don't know if they were shown on the West that's, Coast. That's where I would. That's where I would generally see them. Yeah. Oh, and and you know when I'm in Philadelphia, there were a couple of art theaters also when I was living in Philadelphia. Uh, but for the most part, uh, the only time you would ever see these pictures is they would they would sort of dump them onto um, uh, local TV uh, UHF stations uh, in dubbed versions uh, because they wanted stuff to fill time and so they yeah. uh, they 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 and and the dubbing in that days in those days was you know uh, not bad Un sounds... unlike what they're doing with netflix these days where they just pull people off the street and you know do you know croatian here dub this into croatian <laughs> um, if you don't know croatian come and dub it for us <laughs> i can't imagine yeah, being like 10 years old and stumbling across a dubbed bob la flambeur though i don't know what i would have made of it it's uh... but you know what's um what's interesting is i think is um in a way, the, 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 the availability, the easy access to so much content now, I think, is diminishing the exposure that yes. younger people have to gems like this. Because 
we tended to watch these kind of things. Certainly, I did when I was young because, well, I, I, I watched this when I was older. But when I was a kid, the BBC used to show a lot of black and white stuff and a lot of movies late at night and during the daytime. So you wouldn't necessarily have put on your list of films you wanted to see. But you'd right. watch because there was no VHS or DVD or streaming services back then. And it was a movie. So you'd watch these films and you'd say, wow, this is great. So you had a kind of more comprehensive understanding of where cinema had come from or what was available, what had been made. Uh, because you would see these little B movies or low budget films that would be on late at night sometimes. It didn't have to be a feature, you know, a feature presentation. And now, of course, I know, you know, you can kind of find everything, but do you, you know, do, would you want to look? If you're, if you're a young person and you're hooked on manga, uh, an anime, you're going to watch 37 days worth of, you know, uh, One Piece or whatever it's called, and you'll never get to the films of Jean-Pierre Melville, which... I don't I'm not making a value judgment on that I'm just saying I think it's a shame there was a yeah. lot to be said for being bored and not having access to everything well also yeah. we used to we used to have to seek things out you know it was a special it was a special thing to find a movie that you've been trying to see and, and you'd stayed up late and, and it's it's only going to be on this year for one time on television yeah. and it's at one o'clock in the morning and you try to we don't have tape you don't have, you yeah. have to hold you your eyes open like in clockwork orange and, and yeah. try to make it through and my, lot, you'd fall asleep on movies that you wanted to see and they wouldn't run them again for another you know yeah. year and a half or more but and even was, even the early video days i remember you know i would always scour the the newspaper's tv guide because they would have that section of movies this week and you'd go through and you know something would be on at one o'clock in the morning on thursday and you would set your timer but then you'd realize that at two o'clock in the morning on thursday there was something else you wanted to see and they were only both showing the one time and it was still yeah there was that that's one of the reasons we do the show jonathan is is um and why joe started trailers from hell i think is to uh you know help try to do something to make up for that loss of, of you know a connection to these things um because because uh, we have access now but we don't have yeah. a, a lot of people don't know enough stuff about yeah. what to look it's for i mean imagine walking into your room right now and you know i'm looting your house while you're out there and i'm like okay i want to take one comic book that's going to be the best read i've ever i don't know where to begin you should see this folks he's got what is that thousands of comic books behind him i mean i've got most i've got all the comic books i want let's put it that way but i think you've got, got all the comic books it's yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> i've got a lot of original art but yeah it is um without some guidance and you're right comic books is not a bad comparison because of course you know in recent years that industry has changed so much and so dramatically even in terms of where people buy them they used to be newsstand distribution and so we would pick them up as kids and they were all ages and right. so you could read them at any age and it was great and the stories really in a way i think that was more of an interesting challenge for the writers and artists than it is when they can define their work and saying this is for 18 plus people you know um uh, and so you 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 kind of grew up and you formed a real bond with this stuff, especially here in the UK, because you once again you had to seek them out. They weren't as readily or easily available at newsstands as they were in the United States where they originate. But we have a real those of us who fell in love with them then. It's a lifelong passion, you know, because they they meant so much to you back then, and because you had to really work to find them. Um, but also because I think they were just, it was different. You know, I mean, it's interesting. I'd love to know what you think, um, guys. But I was talking to someone recently about how, although I'm opposed to censorship, of course, I don't agree with censorship. And I, I want artists to be free to what do what they, they can or what they want to in their work. But at the same time, I kind of miss seeing movies where people were working in code when there were those having to work around yes show everything or tell everything and it was only afterwards as an adult you look back and say oh this is a film about a gay romance i get it now 
or this yeah. is a film about this and they, they couldn't say it and I kind of I kind of miss people making movies which you could watch with anyone in the household but it meant different things to all of you yeah the, the Lubitsch touch yeah yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, but there's any kind of um, restrictions uh, are kind of fun. I mean, I think I think the best art comes through, um, yeah, having having to work around whether or not it's a sensor or budget limitations or yeah. you know, what have you. But I mean, you think about a film like The Apartment. You know, we didn't miss the fact that we didn't see what went on in the apartment. You know, you don't need to see in graphic detail what Shirley's being asked to do when she goes back with the guys from the office. And in a way, it has a greater power, I think, that it's left your imagination. But that, get, that gets back to Lubitsch again, because, you yeah. know, Wilder yeah. used to write stuff for Lubitsch. And, and, uh, and, and, and when, when Wilder's career started to go on the downslide was when he started making pictures like Irma Deuce and uh, Kiss Me Stupid and mm. movies that were considered, uh, you know, kind of outrageous for the time, Wait, but see. were not as subtle as the movies yeah. that were being that's made the word. 10 before. That's the word, isn't it? It's subtlety. There's still sophistication, but it is subtle in its delivery. Mm -hmm. Although, and I don't I don't normally do segues for the guest, if you want to, I don't know where this is on your list, but what, what a segue into what what is, even today, always surprises me as one of my favorite Hitchcock films. We, oh, of course. Okay, so really, it's one of your favorites. Okay, so I put I Frenzy. It, yeah. I put Frenzy on my list. Uh, and once again, while the selfishly part of the reason why I put Frenzy on is because it's neglected, not talked about, uh, but also because uh, a lot of it is shot on location in Covent Garden mm -hmm. in London. And it's a Covent Garden that no longer exists. It's a Covent Garden that was, it used to be the biggest flower market in the UK. Uh, and it was odd that it's right in the centre of the capital city, which now is this sort of prime real estate with expensive stores and very, very expensive apartments. Um, but so it's a slice of fairly modern history i was old enough i'm old enough to have been there as a child when it was like that and mm. when they shut down covent garden they moved it to a less expensive part of town that area remained boarded up for a couple of years and that was where the one of the first punk clubs was in a kind of abandoned rundown nightclub there the roxy was in oh, covent garden wow. yeah and so i used to go there uh, when i was a young punk in like 1976 and 1977 i was a kid of 16 17 i went out to see bands uh, play there and and it was amazing because it was quite high risk because everywhere was boarded up there was no nowhere to hide and you you kind of were out there and there would be gangs who would try and beat you up and you'd so it was it was kind of a fun it was uh, the difference between violence and an action film it was more of an action film vibe than because it was mainly in your imagination but i love looking at london in that period the period of my childhood uh, and obviously it's not a kind of uh it's not a, a happy tourist visit when you go to frenzy because there is a serial killer loose uh playing on on young women but it's an amazing kind of slightly seedy no. entrance into into hitchcock's uh body of work i think but i think what what i somehow every time i go to it i expect just because it's late in his career and just because of that kind of seedy sleaziness where you know he started you know there's there's a shot of a booby in it for god's sake and and you know i think somebody says shit at one point you know it's i'm always prepared for it to be um the end for him you know i'm always prepared for it to be like that moment where it all just sort of falls apart and it's such a solid hitchcock film um, yeah, well, that's because yeah, he didn't have Lou Wasserman telling him what to do. I mean, you know, it went, went in his in his later Universal pictures, of which this is one, but it was made overseas. Right. Uh, you know, Wasserman was calling his shots on casting and telling him what not to do and what not to make. And he had a picture called Kaleidoscope that he wanted to do that was 
considerably different than the kind of Hitchcock movie we're used to that, that, that was basically scuttled. Uh, and he's also a stockholder in MCA. So uh, it, it was in his own best interest. They kept telling him to make commercial movies and, you know, get rid of that Bernard Herrmann guy and, you know, get, get some pop songs in there. Uh, and, and, you know, you end up with Torn Curtain. So, yeah. uh, but, but Frenzy was a really a breath of fresh air, I think. Uh, it, it was, you know, it's, it's a very, it, it looks like it was made by a younger man, which is like yeah, a yeah. compliment yeah. for That's a feeling of sort of the vibrance and energy of a filmmaker setting out at that stage in, in time. Well, then, but I like the moment in Torn Curtain, which I, I really admire, even though I was the scene in which they have to try and kill the, the soldier, oh. uh, which is a long protracted scene, which is so gruesome yes. and gripping is a really powerful yeah. uh, element although overall yeah the film is is somewhat lacking but there are a couple of moments and flourishes in frenzy as well which are rather which are rather beautiful from the director's point of view there's the scene when you know the shot when the camera pulls back from the room the woman yeah. goes oh and the yes up, and then it goes backwards down the stairs and then it goes out into the street and gradually the noise of the street and life outside comes in to focus for you all and you realize life is going on while this unspeakable act is yeah. occurring in this private space which is a really a really you know one of his finest sequences i think and the, and the and the back of the truck with the potatoes and the, and the and finger the, finger it's a lot oh. of great it's a lot of great stuff in that movie. Yeah, great stuff yeah. i think the screenplay was by someone like tom stoppard or pinto or someone it was a good it was a playwright a fairly famous playwright wrote the screenplay oh god you're right and i think anthony um, schaffer uh, it might be Schaffer. Yeah, I think it might be Anthony Schaffer. I think you're correct. Yep, Anthony Schaffer. Yes. And there are a couple of bits in it now that would be problematic to modern ears, of course. But isn't that the case with every movie from the seventies, or or isn't the early the or the early twenty tens? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The only the only movies that don't complain lines that are problematic are silent films. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a, I, I bet it would take five minutes to find. A, uh, a shot from a chat. There'd be a subtitle, yeah. There'd be a yeah. caption card somewhere. Uh, so I love Frenzy, and I really, uh, you know, yeah. I, I mean, and it's the last, it's the last great Hitchcock film in my mind. I mean, you know, yeah, it's uh, true. Yep. Yeah, really, I really love it for that reason. And I find myself it's one of those movies that whenever it pops up on TV, I will watch it again. You know, uh, yep. not not just because I like seeing the cars that were driving around London in the early seventies, but also because it's such a, a gripping story and great performances. I think great, great, great cast. Oh yeah, yeah, and and to to my eyes, at least the first time I saw it, and even now, because so many of them, you know, you've seen other things, but they're still, they're not movie stars. Mm. You know? Yeah, they were fairly well known here in the UK. I think they were TV stars. Right. I think the lead actor is a guy called Barry something. Uh, Barry Foster, is it maybe? I can't yeah. Remember. Yeah, yeah, and and he was quite big on British TV, but never really made it internationally. And once again, in a way, that gives it a low budget, a slightly grittier, a, a slightly seedier feel, in a way. You know, it's the fact that it's not, it's not a star. They're not glossy. Yeah. You know, they're not polished international brands. They're actors. They were stage actors and good TV actors with, with the kind of teeth that in England we accept as our birthright. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I just, I somehow I always love it. John Finch. That's who, yeah, who's the, uh, yeah. the, the, uh, the, who had just guy. done Macbeth for, um, oh, that's right. Polanski. For Polanski. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Polanski. Uh, who's also in a really interesting film. I, really, he'd, um, I think it's the only Michael Moorcock movie that's ever been. Uh, the, oh, final the Final Program. program. Uh, yeah, which is also known as Last Days of Man on Earth, which I did the trailer for. Oh, I've never okay. seen that film. I'm, I'm a big Moorcock fan. I've never seen that. I'm going to have to dig that out. Oh, it's, uh, it, there, it, it didn't yes. lead, unfortunately, to a lot of other Moorcock movies uh, because it was not 
particularly successful on either side of the of the country and it was and it's been released in different versions but but it's quite an offbeat movie yeah it's definitely it's definitely worth seeing um oh look here they have it at movies unlimited on blu-ray i'm gonna order, yeah. <laughs> Could have thunk it. I'll order a couple more so i go over 50 dollars and get that free shipping that's right. Although I don't do these, well, well, uh, well, well. Let's tell you what. We'll let him find out for us if the free shipping makes it all the way to Europe. I'll, I'll um, get it shipped to my house in Florida. It's fine. Great. What's that address again? The address is <laughs> none of your business. <laughs> um. Uh. Well, what's what's next, Jonathan? Uh, I don't know where do you want to go. Do you want us to go Hollywood mainstream, or do you want us to go uh, uh, Hong Kong cinema? Where do you want to head to? Whatever you want. Yeah, you're the okay, tour well, let's, go, let's stay. Uh, let's stay in the mainstream. Then uh, I want to go to. Two Sylvester Stallone movies, Rocky, the first of the Rocky films, and Rambo, the penultimate of the Rambo films. Okay. Now, Rocky, I kind of don't need to say much. I mean, brilliantly directed by Avildsen, just an incredible score by Conti. But of course, it's the screenplay and the lead performance which make it just, I think, one of the greatest films of all time. It is just a, just such a, a beautiful, romantic underdog story, punching above his weight, quite literally, in some ways. Uh, great performances all around, great cast all the way through, and Stallone becoming a star. Stallone, when he is kind of wow. not recognizably the Stallone he became with minimal body, body fat and, and a breezy confidence, but was still essentially a kind of quirky character actor who saw his chance and grabbed it. And I just, I love the film for what it is. I love the, watching the film, but I love the story behind it, the fact that he had this screenplay that everyone wanted to buy and he wouldn't sell it unless they cast him in it. And he held, stuck to his guns and he was right, of course. We can't imagine anyone else playing that character now, but what a what a great confidence to have in yourself and in your work and what a great, and even though the, the story, you know, it seems simple after the event and you look at it and say, yeah, of course, that's how the story plays out. Who wouldn't write the screenplay that way? But in a way, that's the, I think the, the mark of a, a great screenplay is that it seems so obvious and it seems so real and it seems like, you know, like, well, of course, that has to be the story. And, yeah. it, and it is, I think, just, uh, I think it's a sublime piece of cinema. Yeah. I, as, as a kid from Philadelphia who saw it in Philadelphia, um, you know, I just remember running out of the theater. What were those theaters? Were they there when you were there, Joe? Sam Eric? On Rittenhouse Square. Um, at, at like, no, it's, that, they were Eric theaters. I, think. I remember just running out and doing laps around Rittenhouse Square afterwards. Going, yeah. And did um, you think you, did you think boxing might be a future for you back then, Josh? After you saw that movie, I, for about ten minutes, I probably did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Stallone himself said he's responsible for more Italian men, Italian young Italian men getting broken noses because they thought <laughs> they could box than anyone else. It's still you're talking about the ending. I don't know if I've, there was a guy. Was it Bob Kerry, Joe? Like who? Uh, a guy who ran for president many many decades John ago. John Kerry. No, no, no. <laughs> pre pre John Kerry. I think it was Bob Kerry and. Um, I remember he would play the theme to Rocky at his uh, uh, his rallies. And I remember somebody asked him about it, watching this interview. And he goes, he goes, because it's the theme song to my favorite movie. And it's it's the guy who comes from nowhere. And it's going to be the story of this campaign. And I'm thinking, buddy, I know how my favorite movie ends. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's not your campaign song. Yeah, it's not a good campaign song. <laughs> it's you know, it's it's, I would have thought most people of uh, most people who visited the gym in their life would have worked out to that track at least once. For sure. For yeah. sure. And everyone who's been to Philadelphia has stopped by the statue and done the pose yeah. next to it. Um, uh, yeah, an amazing film, an amazing performance. Film. And then I've gone with the penultimate Rambo because I, I, I like the first Rambo, First Blood, and the, the, the next two are enjoyable 
nonsense. Oh, wait, sense. you're talking about, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going, that's, is it, it's not the penultimate, it's the, you're actually talking about Rambo, just Rambo. Yeah, just Rambo. <laughs> the penultimate, okay? Oh, well, yes, no, 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 I know, I, I was sitting here going, does he know there were more after? Because he can't yeah, possibly yeah. be talking about the next to the last one. And, uh, no, I, uh, you know what, I like, I like the last one as well, it was fine for what it is, it's fun, it's a big old exploitation B-movie with the satisfyingly cathartic death at the end, which my son would have approved of. When my son used to go and see movies when he was younger, he used to be furious if the villain didn't get killed in a way which was graphic and long enough for him to enjoy on screen. You know, <laughs> you know, if the bad guy gets killed too quickly, it was disappointing to a young person that's disappointing. Yes. Well, wanna, and this, in the last Rambo movie, which I can't even remember what it's called, I think it's called Last Blood, perhaps, uh, you actually, you know, you really, you really, you get to see the, the bad guy dying quite slowly for some time and it would be very satisfying to the younger or the more simple-minded audience goes but um rambo the penultimate one is the one where he hadn't made a movie for a, a rambo film for a while of course and then we we catch up with john rambo and he's out near burma near the border in burma yes. and he's a kind of solitary figure almost kind of you know almost a kind of grunting animal of a man he's no longer socialized or connected to the real world and then it's sort of tropey in that it's sort of one last mission kind of vibe but it isn't and it has i think at one time it had the highest body count in any movie <laughs> uh, it briefly. can't possibly have been exceeded yeah i mean it might have done who knows these days we see you i don't know but <laughs> I, i've got a fun anecdote you might enjoy about this is i i was desperate to see it and i got sent an advanced copy to watch by the studio had it at home and that night, and I'm, I'm warning you now, I'm name dropping terribly now, okay? But that night, and this doesn't happen on a regular basis. I don't, really, I don't know why this happened. I think they were in town, I met them. I had two of the greatest directors in the world around my house, okay, coming to visit. I had Guillermo del Toro, oh. me, and Alfonso Cuaron, okay? They came around for dinner that night. Wait, and wait, wait, lovely... wait, I'm sorry, wait, wait, yeah. you showed them Rambo? Well, here's the thing. My wife, <laughs> my wife was, my wife, was questioning my judgment. And I said, look, here's the thing, guys, you've had a lovely meal. I got this movie, I really, I really need to see it. I've been waiting to see it and I really want to see it. And Guillermo said, of course, he loves that kind of film. Alfonso sure. was understandably reluctant. He is slightly more, he's more Lubitsch in his taste. He was more like, well, I don't know. I don't, I'm not really a big Rambo fan. I said, well, guys, here's the thing. I'm kind of going to watch it anyway. Um, <laughs> it's up to you. You can sit out there and talk with my wife. Or you can sit in here and watch it. We can all watch it. But I've got to see this movie because I've been waiting for it for so long and I've heard so much about it. So we sat down to watch it. And, and right from the beginning, Guillermo's uh, on the same page as me. We're going, come on, Rambo, yeah, yeah. And Alfonso's kind of like, oh, dear, oh, no, really? Okay, okay. But by the end, all of us, including Alfonso, went, that's it, Rambo. Kill the motherfucker. Rip his heart out. Cut his throat. So we were all fully won over by Stallone's artistry at the end. And I think that is a sign of a great movie. What is happening here? This is, I, re I remember about 20 minutes in, uh, Rambo kind of suits up for a big confrontation with the bad guys. Uh, they've killed someone, I don't know, or someone who cares about is it. Uh, and, and, and he starts blowing people away. And I'm going, okay, this is that, you know, th this moment's going to pass and then something will go wrong. They'll catch him. There'll be some kind of reversal. It'll be, you know, because we got to move into like, I don't like thinking this way, but you know, we're going to move into the second act of the film. And then about an hour in, I'm realizing, oh, no, it's just this. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's you just think, slaughter. You just this. You <laughs> just this. But that's what I came for. I came for just that. Yeah, and he delivered plenty of that. 
it's it's uh yeah it is it's kind of like one of those uh sexy time movies where they don't even bother have the plumber show up at the door it's well, just uh, <laughs> this is the screenplay writer in you talking right now it <laughs> certainly was boy i want to connect to the, the the living breathing child within you enjoy seeing a man with a gatling gun killing thousands of other men who are unquestionably bad guys oh very very bad guys yes that's it so that's all we need it's it's like it's like the second alien movie but you know in that way we gave him the pass because oh you're blowing aliens away of course it's great he said you know what i'm still going to do it with human beings right and i'm going to let you judge the morality of this but it's a powerful <laughs> piece of cathartic and and certainly memorable pulse pounding cinema i believe I would like to remind our listeners that a few minutes ago, both of these gentlemen were giving me grief for having my GI Joes kill a hippie. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cinema, real life. You see, I wouldn't do it in real life, but I think you would. They're GI Joes. I mean, you'd say that's where it starts. Um, so I love Rambo. I love Rocky, and I love Stallone as well. I've had the pleasure of meeting Stallone many times. I've interviewed him on stage here in London. He's done my talk show many times, and he's just a a charming, uh, funny raconteur and a great talent. And uh, one story you might enjoy, after I interviewed him on stage, it was some weird deal where these promoters have brought him in town to, to talk on stage and he was being paid to do it, I think. And part of the deal must have been that he had to eat at the restaurant these entrepreneurs owned afterwards. So we went out for dinner afterwards at this kind of essentially slightly above the level of a fast food Italian. It really wasn't a big stomp. And we're sitting in there and I think Stallone had agreed to do a lot of photographs. So I'm sitting with my friend who come, we're sitting opposite Stallone, having a chat about the struggles he had with various screenplays and so on. And while we're doing this, there's a line of people who are sliding into the booth next to him for photograph. And Stallone, without breaking the line of his conversation with us, is posing with his fist against their face, which is presumably what people want Rocky to do. So you go like, so anyway, I wrote the screenplay, I handed in, flash, the picture goes. And then this guy turned around, he said, no, I want full credit. And I said, I ain't going to arbitration. So I said, Flash. So instead, we did, he had this entire quite lengthy conversation about his struggle with the Writers Guild arbitration system while posing for the whole time for about 30 photographs with fans. <laughs> it was the most surreal but kind of brilliant thing. I thought that is that's a star who's yeah. no longer, you know, who's no longer troubled by the fact that he is adored and loved by millions. He's happy to he can coexist in the real world, having a conversation, and in this world where he's doing this kind of promotional thing going on. So At he is, uh, I, have, I have all the time in the world for Mr. Stallone. I think of the multitask. I don't think I've seen him since I dropped out of Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Uh, <laughs> once again, an underrated film. Uh, you know, I, I, know, I know you don't like it. I know Josh. Well, I, didn't, I didn't say I didn't like it. I just said I didn't do it. I mean, it's uh, Carrie Fisher and I were supposed to. to you know, revamp the screenplay, and we didn't feel that it was revampable. Ah, uh, yeah. And so sure. I, we 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 bowed out. Too much heavy. There's too much heavy lifting. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, in that one. But I, you know, once again, what's the one that Landis story did? Was it Oscar? Oscar. Oscar. Yeah. yeah. Oscar. Once again, Oscar has its moments. Yeah. Sure. It has and and Stallone looks great in it, you know, and it's a fun, silly film. But I think at that time, I tell you one that I I want to revisit. I have what was that one he made? Paradise Alley. That's Early a pretty good picture. Movie. That's the one he directed. Is it? I've been yeah. sitting on it forever. Going, do no, I? No, do no, I no. have I, the nerve? I remember being very impressed with uh, how, how well he made it, and it also I has a really nice look to it. Wasn't one of the tracks from that the soundtrack? I think one of the tracks might have been written by Tom Waits for that. Yeah, but what? maybe I've made it up. There's a song in it, and I think Frank Stallone sings it. 
and it goes, you're too close to paradise, you're too far from home, something like that. Uh, and I'm not sure where the weights was involved, but it's a, you know, it's a great, and the, the young guy who played the big wrestler in it, he really, I thought he had real star quality and he kind of just sort of disappeared. Hmm. Uh, who was that? Uh, Lee, Lee Canalito. Let's, uh, let's get it from uh, the movie website. And, we and look, Tom, no, it's Tom Waits. He gave Tom Waits his first shot in a movie. I don't know if he wrote a song for it, but. Wow. Uh, okay. Well, that's pretty good though. That Tom's in it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I guess I have to see it now. Yeah, and you know, it looks great as well. It had, I, I think they must have shot it on the back somewhere, but they dressed them beautifully. It really does look like 1920s or 1930s New York. It's really nicely lit, if I remember correctly. I saw it at the cinema, you know, it was that, it was that phase where they were still making movies which were kind of odd, you know, it's like Streets of Fire. You think, you know, well, that's an odd film. It kind of looks great and, it, and it's weird, but you think, how did, how did that get made? <laughs> you know, it's just, because the tone is so odd. Yeah. But it's great. And it's like Dick Tracy, you know, beat his Dick Tracy, which looks amazing. and must have cost a fortune. Once again, what on what stage did they think there was a big audience ready for that? You know, <laughs> I guess I guess we go back to the classic quote. No one knows anything or whatever it is uh, from Goldman. But uh, but it's an amazing period. I love I love the I love the commercially unsuccessful period of 80s American cinema. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm intimately <laughs> familiar with that. <laughs> That's many of your film shows. <laughs> It's, uh, yes, Joe, Joe may be the king of that. No, not at all. Um, okay, so let's talk about, um, let's talk about Rouge. I don't know, now, have you seen this film, Josh? Uh, have you I have seen, not, have you that's... Um, have you heard of Rouge, uh, Joe? I don't know if you've heard of I, Rouge. I need more information. Okay, so late 80s, it's about 87, 88, Hong Kong movie by Stanley Kwan. Uh, no, produced by Produced by Jackie Chan, uh, really beautiful film and i was lucky enough to see it at the cinema in hong kong i was over there uh filming my my show about jackie chan and the film had been out for a while but i think it was showing uh, and someone said you should check this out and we're thinking of doing something with stanley and it's just a really beautiful it's a beautiful looking film it's beautifully shot really lovely cast i think it's i, I might get the names wrong i think it's um oh leslie chung i think is in it and i'm trying to remember the name of the actor um but it's it's a kind of a very neat, very sweet little story. And I'm sort of surprised it wasn't remade ever because it's such a neat story. Basically, it starts with um, there's a there's a ghostly figure, a kind of one, a beautiful young woman in the streets of Hong Kong. And we find out later on that she's she's looking for her lover from the 1920s or 30s, who she believes is dead, but got lost in the afterlife. They were meant they promised to reunite in the afterlife. And then you found out as the story develops that in actual fact, she was a courtesan. She was essentially a prostitute. And he was from a, a young man from a wealthy family and they were in love and their families wouldn't let them stay together. So they, they decided to kill each other. They were going to commit suicide, kill themselves rather. And then so they could live together. They could be happy in the afterlife, which they both believed in 100%. And then you find out that in that fact, she went through with it. He never did. He, he lost oh. his nerve. He chickened out. And so she's looking for someone who isn't where he should be. And she's looking for someone who essentially gave up on their love. And we find out that the, the, the modern part of the story, the people who found this box of rouge that she'd abandoned, uh, they track him down. And he's now an old kind of like unhappy, lost figure who's frittered away his family money and is now just kind of barely scraping existence. And you realize what he could have had if he'd have had the courage of his conviction is mm. this beautiful afterlife with her. But instead he chose temporal life. He chose immediate satisfaction, gratification. He lost his nerve. He didn't have the courage. Maybe he didn't love her as much as he said, but it's such a sort of a beautiful haunting story. And it's so kind of elegantly told 
that I, you know, I really do recommend it. And it's not, not very well known. I'm surprised it isn't better known because it really made an impression on me. It sounds like a great story. I've never heard of it. Yeah, I've never. It's such a neat story. And it's such a, you know, it's like a suicide pact and one doesn't go through with it. And the other one's waiting and waiting and waiting and can't work out why she can't find him. So finally she makes the journey back to, her, to our world to see what's gone wrong. And she finds out he never left. Oh, you know, but it's a bittersweet, of course, but it's a beautiful film. I really recommend it. And it, everyone looks great in it. And, you know, it's sort of like uh, Hong Kong. It's, it's set design from the 20s. So you can imagine it's sumptuous and beautiful back then. And right. then you see the modern Hong Kong and they focus, and Hong Kong is quite a beautiful city if you shoot it right, but they focus on the seamier side, the, you know, the lower levels, uh, the kind of grimier side of life. And so the contrast is very marked and very powerful and works very well for the story. Mm. Wow. Yeah, no, that's, that's uh, yeah. completely unknown. I think I might have seen it because I think Jackie might have put a screening on it. So I was out there filming uh, the Jackie Chan documentary did, which was the first kind of big Western interview with Jackie Chan, who I've been a fan of for some years. Uh, you might enjoy an anecdote about Jackie Chan. He played a trick on me. Well, I think it was to establish whether or not we were worthy of his trust and support in doing this thing because we were out there and we were saying we're big fans and he said to me do you like uh, you like cars you like sports cars and his english was pretty terrible but then it's much better now but it's still not you know it's still a lot better than my cantonese and mandarin but you know it wasn't <laughs> fluent uh, and i said yeah and he had 23 mitsubishi sports cars they used to gift him a sports car so we were out there when it was his birthday and he showed me the car and he said you do you, this is my new car and i said wow jackie it's incredible he said you want to go for a ride and I thought, I can't believe this is happening to me. Jackie Chan's going to take me for a ride in his new sports car. So I got in and we drove at a speed which I would say was just below the level of a light aircraft. I mean, I've never been with someone driving that fast on a winding road away from the studio, away from Golden Harvest, up, up the hillside into this kind of remote spot way up high. And, we got, and literally we got there in, you know, two minutes, but it was a long drive terrified. He said, we get out, we see the view, we get out, we get out, see the view. He then got back in the car and drove off without me. Right. He left me as the sun was setting on top of a, a kind of very high hill. So I had to walk down. It took me about an hour to get back. I was, uh, you know, a combination of scared and confused. Got back. Jackie and his entourage had left. My film crew went. He said, what happened? I said, honestly, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> Next day, we've turned up for filming. He didn't mention it. I didn't mention it. We got on great. <laughs> it was just the weirdest thing. <laughs> There's a Chanism. I think That's... it might have been a test, and I hope I passed. What if it wasn't? What if he just forgot? I don't know. I think um, I think I saw him smiling as he drove off. I yeah, no, you're probably right. I my, my closest to that, I don't know what name was was meeting with a big star to, to be in a, a movie I was hopefully gonna direct it. Sadly it never happened. I remember sitting there with this person, um, and uh, lovely, lovely guy, his his legs were up on the table we were sitting at, and he farted very loudly. And to this day, I'm not sure if that was, you know, this is my neuroses. Like, is he testing me? Is he waiting yeah. to see if I'm going to mention it? If if I mention that he farted, will he do the movie? If I don't mention he farted, will he do the movie? And you sit there and you don't even listen for the next five minutes because you're going. <laughs> you're turning it over in your head. Oh, yeah. But that, that's when people have too much power. He may have just farted too. Too many beans. He may have just farted, but if you farted or I farted, Josh, you'd mention it. I'd go, I'm terribly sorry about that. Well, you're British. We're American. We would just laugh. Would you? Yeah, but you'd acknowledge it. <laughs> yeah, well, I can't not acknowledge the fart. Uh, and then we'd edit it out of the episode. Yeah. Or yeah. in, as the case may be. Or in um, the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so 
So do you want to, let's talk about the raid next. Have you seen that once again, Joe, have you seen the raid? It's a, I think an Indonesian film, but with a Welsh director by the name no. of Gareth Evans. I believe I have seen Joe's that picture. Well, there's another, there's another raid from 1954, but that's, oh, I, it's I, saw that one. I saw that when I was a kid. It's not that one, but I will seek the one out now. There's the Wade and Wade too, and the Wade was great. And it came out in a way. It it, it scuppered the chances of the Judge Dredd movie that came out about the same time. That was pretty good because it had oh, a right, remarkable. It was a similar. Yeah, you're right. Which was also a great movie. Yeah. Yeah, not bad at all. Not as good as the Wade, I don't think. No. But the Wade, of course, it's cops going into kind of like get you know get a kind of criminal kingpin a kind of drug lord out of this lair that he's established built for himself in a giant tower block but of course everyone in the tower block is either working for him or terrified of him or also willing to try and do what he wants in return for i think a reward and as these soldiers go in and they've been tipped off by the way by one of the sorry the military or the cops the military police i think been tipped off that they're coming anyway they're ready for them and essentially they're walking into a massive kind of ambush situation in a locked in building so it's it's kind of like, you know, a cross between Assault on Precinct 13, maybe with a little bit of, you know, the blood, the head count of Rambo in there, but amazing martial arts as well. Incredible, and, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, you can't, a good martial art movie, I think, is hard to beat. Uh, I've got another one I want to talk about in a minute, which I think is perhaps my favourite martial arts movie of all time. But martial arts, you know, they're often underrated. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, like you, we were joking about Rambo being almost a porn movie and that there's the, the gratification that you seek without there being characterization or plot to justify it. And, and in a way, you know, I think that's often people feel that way about martial arts movie, that you're only going to see the fight scenes. But of course, a really, a really beautifully choreographed fight scene, I think, is enough and often those fight scenes rather like ballet you know they tell the story as well so sometimes you'll see a film and you might think okay there's too much kicking too much punching too much jumping through the air but you kind of almost i think a western audience perhaps have to recalibrate uh the way they engage with something to understand yeah. what's going on you know because it isn't it isn't just meaningless action um and and it's partly comes from that tradition of peaking opera where you know dance and martial arts were incorporated into the storytelling and i think here you know it's just a, such a a glorious example of brilliant editing, brilliant directing, brilliant casting, superb, superbly kind of physical actors, and just a great kick-ass story, really great, simple story that pays off. You know, it really is a, it's a kind of a, it's a simple film, but it's a really memorable and powerful film. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, it was funny. I had, I had, um, there's some incredible moments in the second one, and I feel like a lot of people liked it better, which I, I thought it was terrific. I just remember the one thing I felt about the raid too was that of all the things I wanted more of out of the raid, uh, long expository dialogue was not one of them. It's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. But, but the raid too has that amazing, there's a fight scene in the backseat of a car in the middle yeah. of a car chase, yeah. which is just incredible. Well, you know what? If you like that, then you'll like my next choice. Have you seen Drunken Master 2? Oh, hell yes. yes. Okay, well then, and Joe, you've seen Drunken Master two, one? three, five. I get my Drunken Masters mixed up. It's, yeah, drunk. Well, two is the greatest, I think. And is, that, yeah. There's the fight between Jackie and I think it's Wen Wild Ping, the great martial arts choreographer, under the railway train using those long staffs. Yes, yes, so once yes. Again, you've got an incredibly choreographed sequence in a confined space where they're working and they're using that, which Jackie has, you know, used before. In one of the police story films, there's a fight in a playground where he's using a climbing frame, a children's climbing frame, and they're fighting right. in it. And they're, so he's swinging under it. And of course, the blows are being blocked by the structure itself. And then he pops up and, you know, really wonderful choreography around the elements that they find. And I was lucky enough to be on the set with Jackie when he was shooting, directing one of his films. 
wow. It wasn't one of his better films. It was, uh, it, it was released, I think, as Pocket Full of Miracles. This was when I was filming with him. But what was interesting was I was walking around just filming with him and the stuntmen, and they were looking at the buildings they had in the set, and they were trying to think of some new action sequences. And it was fascinating to see the way they was going, what about that window there? Could we do something from there? to that ledge and maybe try and bring this in? Or what about if we brought the bus in from earlier and he goes from the ledge? And so they were, you could see them thinking in 3D based on what they had physically available, how they could make this exciting and different to what they'd done before. Yeah. I, there's and a little bit of that in your, yeah, in your episode. And yeah. um, it reminded me of the time of like stars I heard about, you know, how Charlie Chaplin would work things out. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I remember wondering how long it takes Jackie to work out a, a sequence and, yeah, it's it's uh, it, it was fascinating, and then he's got that entire team. Whereas Chaplin is mostly working alone or just with his DP, yeah. right, Joe? Yeah, and I Keaton. mean, it, and yeah, and Keaton, so yeah, but it's always been, I think, it's always been that closeness between that kind of physical silent comedy, and then you know, in a way, martial arts movies, which oh, for sure, was, especially the Jackie Chan ones, because of course, Jackie often has elements of comedy yeah. in his films as well, and so there's a really kind of direct line between that those movies and, and what he was doing and still to, a, to an extent still is doing an, ama mm -hmm. an amazing talent as well what an amazing director but an amazing star i i still worry about him <laughs> well i think when i interviewed him which was back in about 89 i think i said how many more years have you got and i think he said oh, maybe five maybe eight or something and now you know 30 years on he's still making movies yeah and still being physical in them, you know, to a lesser extent. Oh, right. he, he lets you touch the, uh, what is it, the, the thing in his head. He's got yeah, a... Yeah, still played up there. I'll be honest with you, I couldn't really feel much, but I thought, I don't want to spoil the moment for him. So I went, oh, yeah, really? <laughs> I felt like I was feeling someone's head. Yeah. You know, but I but I went along with it out of politeness. <laughs> oh, you're ruining it for me. But Drunken Master, I like as well, the first Drunken Master. Drunken Master's great, and it's finally out, because um, for a long time, you could only get the chopped up. But didn't, didn't like, uh, the Weinsteins... Yeah, uh, released I it mean, over here. New Line, maybe a lot of those people were buying Hong Kong movies and butchering them. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Harvey. Hey, let's blame Harvey. And I think he sort of chopped it up. But there's finally a version of of Jackie's um, yeah. actual film is finally available. And it's great seeing young Jackie in action, really, because the charisma he has then is extraordinary. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's great. He became, he evolved, and he became a different persona on screen. I think. But those early uh, Jackie films are quite something. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's he's uh, he is the greatest. Yeah. Um, so which one have we got left? I'm not sure which one. You didn't put Good As It Gets didn't make the cut for you, did it? Because I think that's been covered a lot. Um, oh. oh, yeah, go ahead. Um, no, I thought I remember one, but I didn't. Uh, I was kind of fascinated to hear you talk about uh, El Santo Contra Los Zombies. Ah, okay, Luchadori <laughs> movies, yeah. Well, once again, you guys would probably have seen more of this because I think they used to show them on TV in LA. They, in, uh, they did, but not... Uh, there's a whole um, package of uh, Mexican uh, horror films, including uh, luchador movies, uh, that that were making the rounds. But they were all, most of them were in black and white, and so they sort of didn't play them anymore. Yeah. Um, it, but now they're all available on uh, on video. Because I I stumbled on it. I can't remember how. I oh, I tell you how I think there was a guy. There was a guy called Johnny Legend. Sure, yeah, I sure. know Johnny. Yeah, well, Johnny Legend, who I touch base with for one of the other films i think way dennis stecker one of them he had some material and he he owned a lot of small low budget movies he did kind of gather i've been a really great character i love johnny and he was very very into his wrestling as well i think he was a friend of andy kaufman's and i think he'd somehow got involved in that way as well and he mentioned these movies to me and showed me some and i was just the, it, just the weirdness of it struck me as being so 
unlike anything I'd seen. You know, the fact that there was these big, beefy guys still in their wrestling gear, running around in like 1960s Mexico City, fighting vampires and monsters and moth people and just just really kind of, you know, like a trippy experience. Um, so, and when I found out how big they'd been and how popular they'd been, especially in the, the kind of Spanish-speaking world, the Mexican mask race, I thought we would do a show. So we went out and I met as many people who, you know, we could find. I, I met the son of the Blue Demon, who, who El Hijo del Blue Demon, who still wrestled as the son of the Blue Demon, and the Blue Demon and Santo had been close in a few movies. They'd been like Batman and Robin kind of pain. But the movies themselves, you know, it's not like it's a movie I want to re-watch necessarily or revisit, but it's something about the way they're made and the kind of, um, it, once again, it reminds me almost of like 1960s comic books where they're not worried about the logic and they're not worried about if it looks silly. It's just, just enjoy it. Just have fun enjoying this spectacle. And they're, they're, and they're just, really, you know, really joyful escapist entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. What I just tracked, somebody put out, um, did you ever see the Batwoman? The Mexican the wild, wrestling. The wild Batwoman. world of Batwoman? Uh, no, it's just the Bat. She's, she's, it's, she's wearing basically a, a sort of skimpy bikini version of Adam West's outfit. It's from, oh, I've seen photographs of her, but I haven't seen the film. And I've had the poster forever, but it finally just came out on a Blu ray. And it's, uh, oh, I must get it. It's a hoot. It's a hoot. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> There's also, you know, it's like when you see like some sort of, there was, I think, a Brazilian horror series by Steiner called Coffin Joe. Coffin Joe, Coffin yeah. Joe, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So all that kind of stuff, which I love it because it doesn't necessarily embrace the same uh, approach to the monsters that we have from the Universal days. You know, so you'll see a weird kind of supernatural element. And once again, when I look at, you know, sometimes the Hong Kong horror films or the Japanese horror films, you know, in Hong Kong films, of course, ghosts aren't, scary things goes to welcome family members coming back and of course the vampires hop and you stop them not with a stake but with a prayer pasted on the head so just seeing the supernatural approach or kind of fantasy elements approach in different ways in itself i find very entertaining yeah and i i always wonder where like with the santos films somewhere there's there's a is there a ground zero is there one that just sort of you know establishes the the whole notion that wrestlers are also crime fighters or is it just it's just it's just a given is that the i think it's a given i think <laughs> if, you, if you have the vocational calling to be a wrestler then it, what are you going to do with your daytime hours inevitably fight crime <laughs> right. and fight zombies who wouldn't stand who wouldn't you know you're gonna you got to stand up for yourself and In those zombies come knocking you want a wrestler by your side and plus you get to wear a mask all the time how cool well, is the, that the mask hey. the mask <laughs> When we were filming out there, we were filmed, we went out to a, a, a kind of proper wrestling match outside of Mexico, and they said to us in advance, so Mexico was Mexico City was fairly rough back then. They said, look, don't wear fancy clothes, don't wear an expensive watch, you know, because it's kind of a bit, uh, it's a bit kind of um, wild west out there. So we went out there and we had great fun on the night, and they obviously thought it was fun that there was a film crew there, especially a kind of English-looking film crew, and we had a, a really nice uh, a camera guy called Les Young. Really great guy, done a lot of great TV work in England over the years, and I was very fond of Les, and we were shooting on 16 mil. This is before you would shoot and edit on video. It was just the tail end of that. So we had cameras where you were loading and you couldn't do too long. I think the cartridges ran for about 10 minutes. So he's stopping and starting. And they obviously got it to that'd be fun for the crowd if they would throw the wrestlers out of the ring onto the cameraman. Oh, sure. And so Les is trying to film, and he must have, he must have had four or five heavy men thrown onto him. <laughs> right? And to give, you know, hats off to Les, he kept going. I mean, a lesser man would have put down the camera and left. He kept going, he'd reload, and the crowd, would, every time they'd come, and they'd come towards him with the, the man holding up, and you'd see him try and get out of the way, and then following him around, and he's trying to get a shot and 
and then boom, the guy would fall on his head, he'd be down, and the crowd would go nuts. He'd dust himself off, get the camera, and we'd do it again. It was quite, and in a way, I wish we'd had a second unit filming that, but of course we, we didn't. <laughs> wow, just imagine spending the evening having 300 pound Mexican wrestlers thrown at you all night. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it was, I don't think it was his favorite night of work, but he sold it on. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, well, listen, Jonathan. If you want to do as good as it gets, let's let's by all means. I, I, because no one, we we've never talked about that. I've never. It's just a, such a perfect, perfect screenplay and such an amazing performance by Nicholson in a career, you know, where he gave us so many amazing performances. But it's interesting because it's not the sort of film you know I grew up expecting to see Nicholson in. You know, he normally played. I mean, the guy in that, of course, is an outsider of sorts, and he's an antisocial you know, kind of loner and a strange man with his own ticks and quirks, but there's something so beautifully human about it. And I believe, I think the director wrote the screenplay as well. I can't remember his name, Josh. Yeah, James, James L. Brooks. James, oh, James L. Brooks. Okay. Uh, but a, just an amazing screenplay. And, and it's got two or three speeches that, or two or three moments which are eminently quotable and just so wonderful when they hit your ears for the first time, you know, uh, it's either, it's either a moment of sort of like truth telling and awareness, or it's just a moment that you'll want to quote again. Like the great bit when he's a romantic novelist who basically has no respect for his audience. And when he's leaving the publishing house at one stage after having handing in his newest piece of work, which he has little respect for, despite the fact it means so much so many, and the woman at reception wants to talk to him, and you know he desperately does not want contact with any other human being. And she finally corners him at the lift and he thinks, oh, here we go. And she says, can I ask, how do you write women so beautifully? And he says something along the lines of, I think of a man and I take away all common sense and reason. <laughs> it's something really offensively misogynistic, yes. but be- brilliantly funny. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and there's the speech he makes to her when, when he's out with um, oh, uh, Helen Hunt, I believe is the... Uh-huh, yep. And he's out for her dinner, and she's really on the verge of giving up on him. And he just says that thing, he says, you make me, you make me want to be the best version of myself or the best man I can be or something like that. Yeah. It's just you want, I think it's, you make me want to be a better man. Isn't that it? Yeah, it's just such yeah. a neat little phrase, but it's so perfect. And you know, it's exactly, it's the one thing she can't ignore. Yeah. Is this phrase that, and, and she kind of doesn't want it, but at the same time, here she sees someone decent and lost. And she knows that really the only person who can rescue him is her. You know, and it's such a, a beautiful, beautiful moment of screenwriting and such a beautiful, great performance by Greg Kinnear, who I don't think had really taken on a big role before that. I knew him mainly from Talk Soup at that stage. Mm-hmm. He was always very good. And he's tremendous in it. Uh, but the, the three and the little kids, great. The woman who plays Helen's mother in it, who I should know because she's so good in everything she does. Um, but Josh, I'm sure you can help me out with her name. She's extraordinarily good. Oh, Shirley Knight. Shirley Knight. Okay, yeah, she's amazing. Knight, Shirley Knight. You know, it's <laughs> just does. a... And it's essentially really, it's it's really, you know, it's a three-hander. It's those three main characters. It's it's Nicholson and Hunt and it and it's Kinnear, but uh, and it's got the kind of road trip in it, but it's got so many delightful moments of light comedy in it and so many moments of and you know, really it's sort of it, it could so easily have tipped over in a melodrama because you've got the sick kid at the heart of it and you've got the hard-working single mom. And you know, it really could have been if handled wrong, if the tone had been off, it could have been quite an awkward and kind of like slightly mawkish experience. But uh, yeah. but I think they just hit every note perfectly. It just is such a beautiful, beautiful, warm-hearted, lovely, life-affirming movie. It, it is, and he's such a deaf writer. That line you mentioned, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, you make me want to be a better man. It's one of those things that the first time you hear it, you're like, that's perfect. That is a perfect yeah. enunciation of a feeling. 
I have had and and uh, continue to have, thankfully, yeah. with, with my wife Nancy. And um, but you can never say it to someone now. Yeah. Well, you don't necessarily, you know, even though you feel it, you have maybe never been able to express it yourself. But now, but now you can't use those words because it's the worst thing you can do, you know, is instead of, instead of speaking sincerely, you're now quoting a movie. Like I'm not quoting a movie. It just put it perfectly. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You have a point. Yeah. I I thought I, um, the one of his I'm I'm fascinated by, uh, it's quite great is, uh, have you ever ever seen, Joe, were you, I, I feel like if anybody I know might have seen the original cut of I'll Do Anything. No, I, I wish I had seen it. I, uh, I, th- I think when you see I'll Do Anything, you can see the bones of something that might have been really great once. Do, do you know about this, Jonathan? It was the Nick Nolte film. that It was a musical that they cut all the music out of. Yeah, I've And seen, Prince I wrote seen, all the songs. So Nick I, Nolte I think, singing Prince. I think I've seen it, but I think it was not a good experience. So I didn't know that they, you know, but it's weird because there's that period where they didn't know how to make musicals for a while. They were trying to make a modern musical. It's like um, one yeah. from the heart, you know, which is which has got some amazing moments in it, and I love the, the music too. Yeah, yeah. It kind of doesn't quite convince. Work work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and it's really odd because you can see what they're going for, and you're willing them on, and yet it just doesn't doesn't get there. Yeah, there, there's you can go on YouTube and you can find some of the outtakes, and I will say, as a lifelong fan of Nick Nolte, that there's probably nobody on the planet who should spend less time singing Prince songs than Nick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's pro- probably the reason behind probably it. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Although the songs that Prince wrote for showgirls weren't great. They weren't Prince's finest moments. Well, I think he may have had an inkling. <laughs> you know, showgirls is a film I could watch again and again and not reasons just it's such an extraordinary. I saw that picture with an audience that uh, when the movie was over, they all can, congregated in the lobby as if they had just gotten off the Titanic. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it was it's, a bonding experience. It is a bonding experience. It is a bonding experience. It's akin, I suppose that was our generation's one. This generation has cats. I, yeah, sure. Although I don't think that ever took off quite the same way, sadly. No, no and it does. It's not nearly as good. I like heard that, no. Notice from friends who were, you know, very excited to go see it after sort of, you know, the day it finally opened and, and all of them uh, to a man or to a woman told me it's just really depressing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I mean, although I quite liked it because I watched it with my family. Oh, you've seen it? Cats. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, wow. Well, here's the thing. I know the director, Tom Hooper, and I'm a little bit because I was a governor. I sort of still am at the moment, but I'm just coming to the end of my six years. And you can only do six years. A governor for the, the British Film Institute here. And we help kind of make sure the archives are looked after and we you know help uh, allocate the funds because it's a royal charter charity and tom hooper was one of the fellow governors and you know what a smart funny intelligent assured guy really i really enjoyed his company uh, but he's kind of i think disappeared since cats i heard he'd gone to australia for a while oh, no. i think that's where he still is because it was a but i heard i, I wish i could get hold of him because i want to find out because i heard that earlier on in the experience he had um the cgi team had all the cats you could see their buttholes like cats in real life and apparently there is a cut that exists somewhere where all oh. the cats you act, it's cats with buttholes all the way through which is an extraordinarily bold creative choice jonathan please if you if you ever get your hands on it i hope you will remember the the podcasters in los oh, angeles don't worry about it if i ever get <laughs> hold of judy dench's furry cat butthole you will be the first person i call josh <laughs> Can we quote you? Idris Elder's furry butthole. Can I we mean, excerpt that for uh, to promote this episode? <laughs> Imagine 
James Corden's butthole. It's like <laughs> everyone's Christmas has come at once. <laughs> I haven't said that. This is just a rumor. I mean, maybe it doesn't exist. <laughs> maybe it wasn't. You know, this is just. I have nothing. No provenance for this rumor whatsoever. I'm Print just, the uh, legend. Print the legend. Print the legend. Um, oh my God, that was fantastic, Jonathan. Uh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Joe. Lovely to meet you, and thank you so much for the many, many, many films you've given us over the years. I'm a huge fan of yours, so thank you. Oh, thank you. Yes, no, thank you for coming on. This this was wonderful. Uh, I hope you'll come back sometime. I hope we uh, have not abused you too much. And, no, I would uh, love to. It'd be a pleasure. Uh, and, and when um, you're in, uh, and if you ever get into town, <laughs> if ever we're allowed to fly to different countries again, I know, uh, I know. And I hope to come to. I, I miss LA tremendously. You know, I love that some of the cinemas you have there are wonderful. There's there's a, a line called I something I movie or something down near near Studio City where you go in and they do the best food and you sit in really comfortable chairs while you're watching movies. Oh, the, the thing, yeah. is, I sometimes, at my age, I often fall asleep if the chair's too comfortable. That's the, that's the <laughs> downside. Uh, but I, I miss LA. I love LA. But, and I suspect the LA I love is largely gone now. But I'm uh, sure I could Largely, yes, it is. Yeah. And Ditto, if you guys ever make it over here, give me a call. You're welcome to come and see my various fortress of solitudes that I have. Yes, that'd be great. Oh, man, it's amazing. Look through the toys. I've got, so, uh, I've got so much stuff. You, it, it's extraordinarily depressing in many ways. <laughs> oh wait, and just completely random. Do you want to take a moment because because I was so thrilled when I saw on Twitter that you're a giant fan of this guy too, and um, uh, to plug uh, his new album. Uh, which one's that there? That's... Oh, that's my that's my Tom Jones in concert shirt. Oh, Tom Jones. Yeah, Jonathan's a I've giant known, Tom Jones fan. I've known Tom Jones since 1987. Uh, oh. when he was sort of doing the Vegas routines and he was sort of not a modern thing. And I'd been a huge fan. I got my first talk show on TV then. It was sort of a postmodern type thing. We were heavily, heavily influenced, i.e. we whipped off Letterman to try and do an English comedy talk show. And uh, Tom was in town performing on a very kind of mainstream show, but we knew he was in town. So I went to visit him and he was being managed by his son. And we said, look, we'd love to have you on the show. Do you do any new songs at all? We love all the old stuff. But, and he said, yeah, I do a couple of my act. I do uh, Dance All Days by Wong Chung and I do Kiss by Prince. And we went, hold on, you do a Prince song? I said, well, would you do that on the show? And he went, yeah, sure, why not? And we thought, holy cow, we couldn't believe it. <laughs> And he did it on the show and watching at home in England was Anne Dudley from the Art of Noise. And she saw and said that could be a hit. So she contacted Tom's people. Oh, and wow. that's why they recorded Kiss, because they'd seen it on the show. Uh, and Tom's always been very generous about us getting him to do it. So I've been sort of a, I wouldn't call myself a friend. I'd like to call myself a friend, but I don't know him that well. Although I saw him very recently because his new album, as you know, Josh, is tremendous. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Fabulous. And so he came on to talk about that. And I saw him probably only three months ago. He lives here in London now. And uh, he's just a, I mean, just a great, a great character. And what a oh. story. I mean, he's, every, he's known everyone. He's met everyone. You know, he's Elvis, Sinatra. Uh, just Janis ev Joplin. Yeah, no, he's... he's you know, Michael Jackson, everyone. Janis Joplin, yeah, exactly. All those old people as well from the 60s. Hendrix he met, you know. Yeah. These people who are only had the, you know, burned very brightly, but for the briefest period, he, he was an associate of, or he knew, and he, he rubbed shoulders with him. No, he's, he's amazing. And I, I loved, uh, I, I'm, I was unaware that there was a new record out and, and John. Oh, it's uh, great. It's a guy, accounted for me. So thank you for that. There's a brilliant English comedian. Actually, he's a Welsh comedian, sorry, but he's a British comedian called Rob Bryden, who you might know. He's done some oh, acting. The Trip. Yeah, The Trip. But also you should check out Marion and Jeff, a series he did early on, which is amazing. Amazing, really dark writing. And, uh, he does an impersonation of Tom Jones, which is kind of brilliant, but it's the easiest impersonation to do. He just goes, "Ho!" That's it. <laughs> but Tom Jones clearly started, but he goes, "Ho!" 
and it kind of it kind of works. <laughs> so whatever exactly. you ask me to do, sometimes in front of you, she goes, "Huh." And that's it. That's all you that's need. That's awesome. I'm stealing that. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us. This has been an absolute blast. And uh, yeah, I hope. And if you're in LA, come come into our studio. We'll do it again. We we, we used to have a studio in Burbank. We used to actually see people in person. Yeah, that was fun. We didn't know. All right, Jonathan. Take, take care. care. Great to see you. Thank you. So Thanks. Much. I need to see that. I need to see cat with buttholes. No, you don't. Bye. <laughs> you can imagine it. <laughs> Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Stay safe out there, folks. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.